We're going to talk about preaching the gospel from the Old Testament. Get that? Preaching the gospel from the Old Testament. We're going to talk about what, in the time of Jesus, what the Jewish people got wrong. Um, and it's an essential salvation issue that they were confused about in large part. And we'll also talk about how the Old Testament only makes sense through the light of Jesus Christ. You really can't make full sense of the Old Testament without Jesus, without Messiah. Otherwise, it's, it's, a, it's all failed. It's failed prophecy, failed anticipation, but through Christ, it just becomes clear. And we'll get into something I'm personally really interested in, which is this. When Paul and other New Testament authors, when they quote the Old Testament, Sometimes we expect them to be quoting it a certain way, and they're quoting it in a different way. You know, you read the passage, you read the quote, and you go, oh, I get what you're going at. Then you go to the Old Testament passage, you look it up. Sometimes you look at it and go, I don't know if this means what, it, what I was thinking it meant in the passage. I'm confused about how you're using this Old Testament passage in the New Testament. So we'll talk about how Paul's use of the Old Testament is not maybe what you thought it was on the surface, but it's super clever. I mean, it is strategically wise how he's using the Old Testament. So we'll just talk about that as well. Um, so we'll pick up here in Romans 9 verse 25. <clears throat> it says, as he says also in Hosea, quoting the Old Testament book of Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. <clears throat> sons of the living God. This is a rather complicated use of an Old Testament passage. So let's just get right into it. Let's get right into the meat of it. Um, it's from the prophet Hosea. Hosea was that prophet that was told by God to marry a prostitute to have his life become a 3D picture of God's relationship with Israel. This prostitute was like Israel who had prostituted herself to foreign gods and idolatry and these you know, ungodly things. And God had married Israel and Israel had cheated. And so it becomes this symbolic relationship of God with Israel. Um, it's, the quote itself is from Hosea 1.10. And it's a prediction. But here's where, it, here's where we get a little off. We read that and we go, I will call them my people who were not my people. And we think, oh, God's going to call the Gentiles his people. Whereas the Gentiles were not his people. Israel was his people. So this is a prophecy that God's going to bring the Gentiles in. But that's not what it is. Actually, this is a prediction of Israel, not the Gentiles. In Hosea, God says of his people first, as you read through the book, he says to Israel, you are no longer my people. And then he speaks of a future time where he will once again call them his people. So Israel, you'll be disowned and then you'll be brought back in. You'll be separated from me, but then brought back in close to me. So this is where the Jewish anti-missionary, and there really are anti-missionaries, that's what they call themselves, they they respond to missionaries to Jewish people, like Jews for Jesus and stuff like that. And what they do is they anti-missionary their fellow Jewish people. They go around and say, let me tell you why these, Jew these Jews for Jesus are wrong, why Jesus is not the Messiah. That's their goal. They'll respond to Hosea 1.10 being quoted by Paul by saying something like, ha, this is about Israel, not the Gentiles. Paul is using it to say the Gentiles will become God's people, but that's not what the text means. Paul misused the Old Testament. But actually, Paul's being more clever than that. And so that's what it excites me, is when you get to like, oh, I see what you did here, Paul. It's actually pretty clever. So first, let me say this. One, the Gentiles will definitely be brought in to become some of God's people. This is prophesied through many passages in the Old Testament, though it's not from Hosea. 
His point in Hosea is different. But let me give you an example. Isaiah 49.6, it says, Indeed, he says, it is, is it too small a thing? Uh, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And this is a servant prophecy of the Messiah, which Jesus fulfilled. So we have Old Testament support for Gentiles being brought in. But Paul's point here is a little different. Paul's point is like this. Think of his audience as a Jewish audience here. Because he, when he's quoting the Old Testament in the book of Romans, it seems like he's quoting it with the Jew in mind to persuade them of the gospel truths. So it goes more like this. If Israel can go in Hosea from being God's people to not God's people to once again becoming God's people, then there is a principle that we've learned from Hosea. God can make not God's people into God's people. Now, why would he quote Hosea for this? Because, of course, the Jew is going to say, of course, God, he may have cast us off, but he can bring us back. Like, that's very nationalistic and supportive of, of something natural for them to receive. So he's taking something they'd be excited about, and he's simply applying it in a broader principle to what God can do. If it can happen with the Jews, can it not happen with the Gentiles? So he's taking them from what they already agree with to this gospel truth about the Gentiles. Um, would God cast Israel off forever? No, not forever. But just like in Hosea, God set them aside for a time and a purpose. That's interesting because that's exactly what Paul is arguing is happening in first century Israel. Is that what happened in the Old Testament is happening again. That same kind of principle. So what is Paul's strategy here? He's using Old Testament examples to establish New Testament teachings and events as being biblically grounded. That's why he starts off by saying earlier in the chapter, the word of God has not failed. Chapter nine, he's like, hey, what about the people of Israel? Oh, I, I wish they would be saved. But he goes, but know this, the word of God has not failed. What's happening with them is not a failure in the word of God. This is why Paul goes around in the book of Acts telling people how much he believes everything that's in the prophets, everything that's in Moses. He believes all of the Old Testament, all of the, the Jewish Bible. He believes this. And so that's why he's a Christian. Um, as opposed to, uh, really, modern-day Judaism is not believing all that is in the text. Modern-day Judaism is something called rabbinic Judaism. Rabbinic Judaism. You might be like, why don't they just call it Judaism? Why do they call it rabbinic Judaism? The reason is because it's Judaism filtered through the teachings of rabbis. These particular rabbis, especially after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, they reimagined Judaism to fit a no temple, no sacrificial system type of Judaism. And that's what they've been experiencing and following for all these years. It's a tradition-based Judaism, not exactly based on Torah, not exactly based on the Tanakh, the, the, what we would just call the Old Testament, you know, the, 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 the law, the prophets, the writings. So really, in, in, in a strong sense, modern-day rabbinic Judaism is, are, the, are the ones that are not really believing all that's in the prophets. I mean, Daniel said that the Messiah was going to come before the destruction of the temple. Well, Messianic Jews believe that, but rabbinic Jews, they go, well, no, Messiah didn't come and that prophecy failed because we were disobedient. Or maybe Messiah did come and some people just didn't receive him, whereas some people did. 
So Paul's strategy is um, is doing something really smart, I think. It, they're, they're strategic examples throughout chapter 9. If you remember some of the examples he gave, Pharaoh, the, these kinds of things. Think about this. He talks about God choosing Isaac, not Ishmael. A Jew's very inclined to support this theology, right? Of course God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. He talks about God choosing Jacob, not Esau. They're inclined to very much support this. Jacob, Israel, that's where we get our namesake from. Of course God chose Jacob, not Esau. Then he shows in the text that God didn't choose them based on their blood or choose them based on their works. And he goes, ah, and salvation ultimately is not from your blood and not from your works. So he takes what's naturally received by the Jew to then say, ah, New Testament teaching confirmed by Old Testament teaching. God hardened Pharaoh. And to this, the Jew would be like, absolutely God hardened Pharaoh. God judicially hardened Pharaoh and did what he did with Pharaoh for his own glory. And then Paul turns to them and says, and couldn't he harden some of you? Well, and you're kind of trapped into understanding this is what's happened. It's, it's, it's Old Testament repeated in the new. So the Jew is inclined to agree with all of these things. Um, I, think it's, I think that's pretty clever. So Paul's point in Romans, as we're coming to like this climactic point here in chapter 9, um, towards the end of chapter 9, is he's trying to say that God is evening the playing field between Jews and Gentiles when it comes to salvation. All Jews are condemned, all Gentiles are condemned, and all can be equally saved by faith in Christ through the grace that Jesus gives. That, that's the main point, and he's driving to it. Verse 27, let's read on. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Now he's quoting Isaiah about Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, Unless the Lord of Sebaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Now, this Old Testament passage, speaking from Isaiah 10, verses 22 and 23, um, it speaks of this concept of a remnant. And this is actually a consistent con concept in the Old Testament. Isaiah speaks about it. We, 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 we see it exampled in different, different books of the Bible where we see a large number of Israel who's not following God and a small number who are. And he's going to carry this into chapter 11, when he goes into Romans 11. But the main deal is this. Many Jews would say, why would I believe in Jesus, Yeshua, as the Messiah, when so many of my own fellow Jews reject him? To which you could say, didn't the Old Testament say that it was only really a remnant of Israel that was faithful to God? So you can't count the heads of how many Jews agree with you to find out if your theology is correct. You need to go to the text itself. There's a remnant, a minority, and the Old Testament supports the idea of a remnant. This answers the question, how could so many be wrong? Well, the book that these so many accept says that so many of them are wrong. <laughs> so so it, it's, it's very clever using the Old Testament to confirm New Testament teaching. Um, one of the greatest witnesses to the Jewish people is the New Testament itself. It really, really is. Um, if you separate it from the abuses that it's gone through historically and anti-Semites who have used this, well, you can't really use the Bible for this, but they stood against the scriptures attacking the Jewish people in the name of the Bible, in the name of Christ. If you could separate it from that, if you can realize that, that those historical people aren't representative of the text itself, because when you read the text, you see hope for Israel, not, not this incredible condemnation. If you can do that, then you realize it's a Jewish book written by Jews who believe the Tanakh, who have found Messiah and are trying to tell their fellow Jews about Messiah using the Old Testament 
and the New Testament fulfillment of this in Jesus. They're believing all things written in the Law of Moses. I know, uh, I heard the testimony of one Jewish man who, he had been told by his family that the New Testament was a handbook on how to persecute the Jews. And so he was told not to read it. But of course, this stirred up in him some curiosity. <laughs> well, I want to see what it says. And as he opened it up, he opens to Matthew. And what does he see? A genealogy. Jesus, the son of David. Wait a, wait a second. This is, this is a Jewish book. And, and so he read through it and he sees that, that Matthew's teaching about him being the king of Israel. The son of David, the fulfillment of these prophecies. And so he read through and realized the New Testament, all of it, written by Jews. The whole thing. I'm, I'm the, see, I'm the visitor. I'm the Gentile imported into this thing. The most natural thing in the world is for the Jew to come to, to Jesus, the Messiah. It's beautiful. So I really think the greatest witness to the Jewish people is the New Testament itself, as it will constantly confirm its teachings through the Old Testament. Things that oftentimes... Gentiles who start with the New Testament, we miss this, right? Because you just start with the New Testament. You know, you start with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You're not starting with Genesis. So you miss this. But I think to the Jewish mind who knows well the Old Testament, they read the New Testament and they're just seeing all these threads connecting and the, and the light goes on, so to speak. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. Um, <clears throat> but why did so many not receive Jesus? Well, that's confirmed in the Old Testament as well. The remnant. Although the Israel be like the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. Just think of how many of the prophets were rejected. In fact, let's make it easier. Think of how many prophets were not rejected. Not that one, no. <laughs> Just consistently they were ignored and, and, and ostracized and marginalized in their time. And it was only later that, that people came around and were like, yeah, they were, they were legit. They were legit. So same thing with Messiah. Uh, verse 30, let's continue. It says, what shall we say then? What's the conclusion? What is Paul's point? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. This is a sharp contrast. And uh, I like that the Bible is not afraid of making sharp contrasts. In fact, Scripture drives us to the point of making sharp contrast. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is a sharp contrast, you know, that, that, um, that there is those who've attained to righteousness because they got it by faith and others who did not because they tried to get it through the law. That's the contrast here. I think if the Bible's not afraid of making sharp contrasts, here's a theory. Maybe preachers shouldn't be afraid either. Just maybe. Like if I'm going to teach this text, then shouldn't I teach it the way that it teaches itself. Shouldn't I stand as confident in the truths that it proclaims as the text itself is in those truths and not be like ashamed of these things? So when I, I know that when I teach on the topic of say homosexuality or, or Christ being the only way or of sin or hell or any of these controversial topics that oftentimes I see pastors get uncomfortable in their, in their shoes when they approach, I feel like I owe it to the Lord to teach these things without compromise just, it's just, this is the facts. And people need to know these facts. So I, I, I think that as, as a principle, I shouldn't be afraid of those things, and neither should you as a Christian. It's just the way, it's the way it is. That's just the way it is. Well, what's the sharp contrast? There's Gentiles. They get righteous just by faith, and they're not even trying. <laughs> what? It's <laughs> not fair. <laughs> exactly. This is the point. It's not about fair. 
It's about grace. They're getting righteous by faith. They're not, they're, not attain, they're not trying to get righteous through any sort of pursuit of their own. They're simply trusting in Christ. The contrast is that Israel, not all of Israel, right? Because Paul will talk about this later. He's a Jew. All the, all the first believers were Jewish for the most part. At Pentecost, those were all Jews coming to Jesus. So, so it's not all Israel, but a large part of Israel. What, where did they fail? They ran after the law of righteousness. So they tried to be, be righteous through obedience to the law. Whereas the Gentiles, they were just living sinful lives, heard the gospel, put their faith in Christ and got righteous. But there was no intermediary of that law going on right there. They have not attained to the law of righteousness. That means that they haven't actually reached it. They're not obeying the law. Now to this, let's say that a Jewish person's hearing me now and they're like, Mike, you slovenly fool. <laughs> I work so hard to observe all the traditions of my people. I work so hard to be a faithful Jew. Everything from the clothes I wear to the way I wash my hands to the food I eat to the, to the things I do on the Sabbath, I do all these things to obey the law. My point isn't that they haven't pursued the law. The text is saying they haven't successfully attained it. Though the pursuit is real, they have not met their goal. And someone might say, yes, I have. Yes, I have. But factually, they haven't. And Romans has dealt with this already. He goes, you, you know, you, you boast in the law. Do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Jesus, he went through great pains. We'll talk about this a little bit later, but he went through great pains to try to point this out to people during his, his uh, ministry on earth. The law is a little bit better than what you think it is. That's why you think you've attained it. But if you look more carefully into it, you'll realize that you ain't doing so good. You failed quite a bit. So nobody obeys the law. That's, that's what Romans has taught us very consistently. The reason why they haven't got righteous is because they are seeking for it through their own works instead of faith in what Christ has done. Let's continue this. Verse 32, <clears throat> it says, why? Why are they not getting this righteousness? Because they did not seek it by faith. Remember now how he, he labored hard to show us that Abraham was saved by faith. Abraham, the father of the Jews, he was saved by faith. And he says, but you guys are trying to be saved by works. They misunderstood the purpose of the law. The law is good, the law is holy, the law is wonderful, but you're not going to work it. You're not going to work this system, so to speak. It should be driving you to Jesus. <clears throat> after the law was given, immediately thereafter, they, must, they, they had to have a whole bunch of sacrifices. The Levitical priesthood was needed. Why? Because you all fail. Jesus comes and fulfills all those things. So why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. And now he introduces this new idea of the stumbling stone. But it's not new to one who knows the Old Testament. And he quotes the scripture here. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So the, the question is why? Why, in verse 32, why, why are the Jews failing? Look how hard we're working. Let's face it, the Jews were working a lot harder to please God than the Gentiles were. A lot harder. Why are they failing? Because they didn't do it by faith. They were missing faith. Instead, they were trying to be righteous by works. Now this brings up to my mind the difference between, Christ one of the differences between Christianity and pretty much every other religious system out there. If you have a salvation through works system, you have a unrighteousness you're trying to attain righteousness and it's not going to work. In Catholicism, 
this is, if you understand the, the gospel of Catholicism, if you understand it the way that I read it in the Council of Trent, the way that I see it in the teachings of the church, the whole merits and works for salvation thing, you don't have the gospel of Jesus. You don't have this, you're not gaining righteousness because you're not seeking it by faith. You're seeking it by faith plus this, plus this, plus this, plus this. In other words, not by faith. But this is where, for instance, we draw a big difference between, say, Catholicism and, say, Calvinism. My past couple weeks or three weeks, I talked a lot about Calvinism. But these are my brothers and sisters in Christ, man. They're righteous by faith. They got the gospel solid down. In my opinion, there's, there's, there's no real significant difference. There's, there's um, differences in how we reconcile free will and sovereignty. But, man, the gospel is salvation by faith alone, apart from works. But with a Catholic person who actually believes Catholic doctrine, thank God a lot of Catholics don't even believe the Catholic doctrine. They don't even know it. They're mad at me right now, but they're not even sure what I'm talking about because they don't understand the differences between the biblical gospel and the Catholic gospel. I have a video on that. Look, my, look on my channel. But, um, but what I would say is, is that we have to just draw these distinctions. Here's the line in the sand. I will offer great fellowship, and, and you should too, between Calvinists, between Arminians, between, you know, the Pentecostals and the cessationists and the this and the that, and, the, and just bring them all together and say, we're under the umbrella of the gospel of Christ. But where you deny salvation by faith alone, you are not under the umbrella. You are outside. And that's what he's saying here. They tried to get righteousness and they never attained it. I think that the, the, uh, this example is bold in, in Judaism because Judaism has a true high standard, the, the actual law of the Old Testament. Some other religious groups have much lower standards. Recently, uh, this was a couple years ago, the, the new pope came out and he was going to declare a special year of indulgences. This is true fact, right? He goes, a special year of indulgences, and if you will go to the places where he's teaching, you will get a special plenary indulgence to, to get forgiveness of your sins or somebody else, depending on how you want to use it. And... Um, and you get this forgiveness, you earn it by attending these events and going to these events, but he decided to make it really easy and say, if you follow him on Twitter, you can also get this, but you have to follow with all your heart, right? And then you can get this plenary indulgence. Now, to those who realize that Jesus had to die on a cross to pay for my sins, this seems pathetic compared to the love and sacrifice of Christ, that I would look at my, my, my Twitter following as somehow earning some sort of grace or forgiveness is really really sad. Um, yes. Now let's look at how Paul is quoting this passage because he quotes in verse 33, two different passages in Isaiah. And he does it, he does kind of a rabbi thing that they do back then, right? He literally combines two passages together. And I think there's a good reason for it. But let me just read the passages. Isaiah 8, 14, and then Isaiah 28, 16. These are the two verses he quotes. So Isaiah 8, 14, he will be as a sanctuary but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The he in this case seems to be referring to God. Seems to be. That's my reading of the text. Um, and God will be like as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So there's this contrast. He's going to either be the sanctuary or, or rock of offense. Uh, one or the other. Isaiah 28, 16. It says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried, and, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Paul seems to be combining these passages to say, hey, the stone, it's the same thing. The sanctuary, the stone, it's the same thing. The, the, the belief is the belief in him. He's laying himself as the sanctuary, as the, as the stone. 
that God, and Jesus came, John 1 says he came and tabernacled amongst us. And so he became that. In fact, he, he deliberately confuses the idea of the temple and his own body. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. He purposely mixes the two, I think, to draw us to these analogies. So Paul is saying that the stone in 28.16 is the he of, 20, or of 8 verse 14. So that's why he quotes it this way. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. That's the correlation. He's, he's doing a, a little mini Bible study there that you can unpack. He'll build more on this later on. Um, psalm 118 is a super messianic psalm. Read Psalm 118 sometime. It's very messianic. It says in that same passage, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, that same chapter, verse 22, it says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Speaking ultimately of Messiah. Um, why did he not quote that too? Why didn't he quote Psalm 118.22? Paul is like, perfect, you should put it in here. Well, first off, you can find it for yourself. But second, because the point is that the stumbling was predicted. It's not so much the point about Jesus being the stumbling stone. That's true. The point is stumbling. Israel stumbling over Jesus. That's the thing that was predicted. There is so much unity in the text. Do you see how Paul's pulling together these threads from throughout the Old Testament to make his case for Jesus? He literally teaches through the Old Testament, New Testament theology. I would argue that this unity in the text is not a coincidence. You know, this is on purpose. And that it doesn't even make sense without Jesus. Read through the Old Testament and take Jesus away from your mind. And ask yourself how much sense this makes now. And why it's just like an unanswered question. It's an expectation that's never met. It's a lot of pictures that are never explained. But as the veil comes off when one comes to Christ, the scripture says. So Romans 10, verse 1, we shall continue, press on. We made it through Romans 9, you can celebrate. It's a, it's a, woo <laughs> um, verse 1, it says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. I don't think Paul was in the habit of praying pointless prayers. He said he prayed three times that the storm would be removed from his flesh. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient. Did he keep praying after that? No, nope. just three times. And then God told me not to. He said, it's going to stay that way. So I stopped praying. Why is he still praying for Israel to be saved if they're hardened? Because hardening is not permanent. Not necessarily. He's still praying for their salvation because their salvation is still entirely possible. Entirely possible. And many, maybe of you, at one point had a hard heart and then came to the Lord after that. And so... God is good. God is good. I do not think this is a token prayer. I think it's an example for us, like all the prayers of Paul that we read about, to pray for people who seem hard. We have to battle against the deception, deception that our prayers are not effective or not important or not worth praying. Why do you think the enemy would want so hard for you to stop praying? I find that encouraging. <laughs> Prayers are important. I, I want to give an example of this. Okay, so in, let me just summarize the story for you. But in Acts 18, Paul goes to Corinth. He goes to Corinth and he's preaching the gospel there. And after like a year and a half or so, they like, or I don't know how long he was there before this happened, but they kick him out of the synagogue. The ruler of the synagogue, his name's Crispus, this guy, he gets saved. His whole household, they come to Jesus, right? They become Messianic Jews. And then they kick Paul out. They kick him out. They get a new ruler for the synagogue. This guy's name is Sosthenes. Sosthenes. 
He's the new ruler of the synagogue. They try to get Paul in a lot of trouble. It totally falls and fails. God's on their side. And Sosthenes ends up getting beat up by a gang of people as a result of him trying to get Paul and his companions beat up by a gang of people. So he's the replacement ruler of the synagogue who heard Paul speak, hardened his heart, rejected Jesus. And then later when Paul writes a letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1.1, he says to them, this is Paul writing to you, and Sosthenes, our brother. This guy got saved and ended up traveling with Paul later on. And he's writing to Corinth and he, this, he's the only guy introducing the letter to the Corinthians who he says by name, there's me, oh yeah, and Sosthenes is here. Why? Because he's known by those people. He's saved now, he's traveling with Paul. Can a hardened heart still come to Jesus? That's every heart, you know? <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Um, so I, I take great courage in that. I like those little nuggets, man, little nuggets in the word. That's Acts 18 and 1 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1. Verse 2 of chapter 10, it says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They have a zeal for God. There are people out there who do not care. They blow it off. They say things like, I'll deal with it when I die. Which is really smart, right? I mean, I'll deal with this idea of salvation after I die, when it's too late. That's when I'll deal with it. I actually talked to one guy who I shared scripture with him. I shared the gospel with him and I shared apologetics with him of why I believe it was true and how he tried to answer his questions. And he said to me at the end of it all, he just wanted me to stop talking, right? And he's like, Mike, I don't care if it's true. I just want to live my life. And I just want to be a good dad to my kids. And I was like, do you think you're being a good dad if you're not leading your kids to the Lord in truth? If you're exampling rejecting Jesus, like, do you think that's being a good dad? And he was like, Mike, I don't care. I don't care. And that was the end of it. That is not a zeal for God, right? This is like a large number of people who have apathy towards God, who push off spiritual issues and ignore them till the last minute, who will not engage in conversations about them, who would never come to a Bible study, that's for sure, <laughs> who would never watch this long in a video. I don't think, you know, that's probably not going to happen. But there are some people who have a zeal for God, yet they're not saved. That's what the text says, isn't it? They have a zeal for God, but they're not saved. These are religiously devoted people. Many people, many of the Jewish people of Paul's time were zealous for God. They had a zeal. They were serious. Like if you met them, you'd be like, wow, they seem so sincere, so committed to, to God, to Yahweh. And, and, and look at their lives and their obedience to him. The question is, is your zeal enough to save you? And the answer clearly is no. God doesn't forgive people because they're passionate. My passion doesn't save me from anything. This is why I think in Romans 9.16, Paul makes a point of saying it's not the gospel of salvation and the election of God. It is not of him who wills. Oh, there was a will. There was a strong zeal amongst the Jewish people, many of them. But salvation is not from that. It's not of him who wills. So the problem is, is given to us in verse 2. They have a zeal for God, but their zeal is not according to knowledge. So if I can summarize it in my vernacular, their theology was wrong. Specifically, their theology is wrong when it comes to how they get saved. Their gospel message was incorrect. They had zeal, but a false gospel. Knowledge of the true God, but a false gospel. So they were not saved. This can be said 
of Muslims, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, many Jewish people today, many Catholics, many people who are involved in works-based systems for salvation, that they might have a real zeal for God, but not salvation because they have a false gospel. Because in their zeal, they're presenting their works, their filthy rags to God as though they are righteous and they're ignoring the righteousness of Jesus who died on their behalf. This is pretty heavy stuff. Verse 3, it says, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, this is what they're lacking knowledge of, God's righteousness, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. What they're unaware of is God's righteousness. So this is, I think, a perfect description of the lowered standards people have when they have a, a what's called legalism, actual legalism. Not when you tell people, like, you probably shouldn't cuss. Doesn't the Bible say, like, you know, that you shouldn't have foul language and coarse joking? Isn't that the Bible? That's legalism. That's not legalism, guys. That's just called morality, right? Legalism, <laughs> legalism is where I use my righteousness to attain righteousness before God my goodness. In other words, a works-based salvation. That's legalism. Jesus worked really hard to try to show them that in their legalism, they ignored God's actual standards. So follow with me for a second as we look at some of Jesus's teachings. And we think about this message Paul's giving. They're ignorant of God's righteousness. How did Jesus bring this to the Jewish people? So let's look at Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, he gets on the Pharisees and the scribes who are the leaders of the people and he gets on them, not because they're too strict. Get this, this is super important. It's not because they're too strict, it's because they are not strict enough. This is different than sometimes we, we, we understand. We tend to think Pharisees, oh, they had too many rules. It's like, oh no, they didn't have nearly enough. Not the right kinds of rules, not the heart rules that God needed. So look at this, he says in verse 23 of Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Now this is where a lot of pastors mock scribes and Pharisees for, for tithing their mint, anise, or cumin. But I think that could be a glorious act of love to God. I'm tithing everything to God. Why? Because I love God. Here you go. Tithing everything. Is that wrong? Is it something I should mock? No. But, but in doing this, in, oh, I spend the time on the mint and the cumin and the anise and the this and the that. Now I feel like I've accomplished God's will. Now I feel pretty good about myself. But I'm neglecting what? Justice, mercy, faith. These, these amazing deep character traits that God wants me to, to have. I'm focused instead on these activities instead of the character of who I am. He goes on in verse 24. He says, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. A fancy trick, if you can do that. He's using hyperbole. He's trying to draw their, their, their point. He goes, you strained out a gnat. Good, that's nice. You strained out a gnat. But you swallowed a camel. You're missing the point. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish. But inside, they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Their method of lowering God's, God's standards was to focus on trivial things rather than the heart of God's holiness. I think this is what Jesus is trying to get across to them. You're focused on these trivial things. You're focused on, on, on the size and shape of the phylacteries and, and of, of making sure that you obey certain rules. But you've neglected 
the, the deepest character issues of holiness that God has called you to. Now, if you get to the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see that Jesus is doing this. He's actually going through this process with him in the Sermon on the Mount too. He's trying to restore an awareness of those deeper issues of the law, those deeper issues of God's holiness. So I'm going to read Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Um, We'll read a small portion of this, just verses 19 and 20. He says to them, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now they would look at the scribes and Pharisees and think these guys are pretty stinking righteous. And Jesus goes, yes, but they're not nearly righteous enough because God has a much higher calling than the things that they're focusing on right now. Then he gets into this, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you. Through the Sermon on the Mount, right? He talks about anger, lust, divorce, taking of oaths, loving your enemies. And he shows that these are part of teaching the Old Testament law. Oh yeah, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. But I tell you, you, you just, you call your brother a fool. You're angry against him in your heart. You committed murder in your heart. You've heard it was said, don't commit adultery. I tell you, look with lust. You've committed adultery in your heart. Don't you realize God's looking at more than just your following these sorts of rules on the outside. He wants you to follow them from the inside out. Cleanse the inside of the cup. Six times in Leviticus, God tells his people, be holy for I am holy. This tells us a couple things. First off, God's calling us to be holy, not just be good. Second, he's calling you to be holy the way he is, which is way beyond anything that's reachable by mankind. That's the standard. The standard is above and beyond us, that's for sure. That's why he says in Romans 2.23, do you make your boast in the law, yet dishonor God through breaking the law? You're condemning yourself. You say the law is true and good, but then you don't really follow it from the heart, from the inside out. So, the, the law is like this mirror that's supposed to be something you gaze in and it shows you your, your flaws. But in reality, it's like those mirrors that enlarge your face. You guys know what I'm talking about? You see those things? Right? You ever you look at the mirror and you're like, oh, and you flip it over, you're like, whoa, look at how gigantic my pores are. I mean, it's like you just like it's like you're, you know, all your flaws are there to be seen, so to speak. Um, but the problem is. Instead of letting it be like a true mirror that really gazes into the heart of man, some people try to use their religion like those phone apps that try to make you look cute. You know what I'm talking about, right? I see these things now. Girls put them on like their Facebook and it's like, I'm like, she doesn't like actually look like that. (laughs) You know, like that's okay. Like, you know, there's like, there's like animal ears and like eyeballs are big and there's like glowing stuff going on on the faces and things like this. And I'm just going like, I wonder how many pictures they took before they posted one just to get it just the cutest possible post. But, but I think some people, they use religion like this, right? They, they, they reflect a false image to themselves through their religion. And that's what they were doing instead of a true image through a real gazing at the law. And so that is the thing that he's trying to get across to them that God is trying to get across, that Jesus is trying to get across, that Moses tried to get across. Will you, like Joshua, will you follow? We'll follow. He goes, no, you won't. <laughs> At the end of Joshua, you know, he's, he's getting ready to, to depart from them. He's like, no, you're not going to do it. Uh, like the, the history of Israel reveals, not because Israel was especially rebellious. Oh no, no other nation would do any better had God chosen them. They're perfectly representative of all mankind. That's the facts. Uh, we all fall short. We all fall short. 
So the idea of this good person thing, it's, it's actually really devaluing to God's goodness, God's righteousness. Being ignorant of God's righteousness, trying to establish my own righteousness. When I say I'm good enough to go to heaven, I'm saying I'm as good as God. Or let me put it a different way. I'm saying God is as good as me. How insulting to a righteous God. If you really honestly look at yourself and think about your thoughts for a second. How insulting to a righteous God. This is what Psalm 50 verse 21 says to that idea, I think. It says, these things you've done, and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you. You thought God was like you? <laughs> Have you seen you? <laughs> like, of course God's not like me. He's so much better than that. So he says, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. I'm going to show you the truth. And it's going to start with my holiness and who I really am. And you'll be judged based on my standard, not yours. It's pretty heavy stuff. So we have two choices when it comes to looking at the law or morality. I either, one, I lower God's standards and act like God's as bad as I am to make me feel good. Or I face the music and I get on my face. And I'm like, Lord, I fail. I'm a sinner. Like Jesus told the story of the man who beat his chest and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That man went away justified. Not the, not the man who congratulated himself on how great he was and thanked God that he was such a wonderful guy. All right, verse 4, we continue in Romans chapter 10. It says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is truly good news. You see, if the law is my only way to get to God, if the law is my way of getting righteous, then, then, I, then everyone is going to hell. We need, we need an end to the law as our righteousness. And Jesus is this. He's the end of the law for righteousness. I don't say this text teaches he's the end of the law, period, end of story. It's not to say that a Messianic Jew can't follow the law. Because they most certainly can. But they're not doing it for righteousness. And we see early, um, early first century Jewish Christians, right? They're, they're Jews following Messiah and they're following the Old Testament laws, but not for righteousness. And that's the big deal. That's the big deal there. So it's the end of the law for righteousness. It's a new way of life for the, uh, it's not a new way of life, excuse me. It's not a new way of life for the Jew exactly. It's a different way to be righteous. That's the point. Um, we'll get more into the details of law and legalism and righteousness not righteous, not for righteousness, but for daily obedience. Later in Romans, he'll get into those topics. Here, he's not covering that. He's just talking about how we how we get righteous. Um, now, some people will want to get enamored, sort of, by the the Jewish law. Like, if you start studying Judaism and Jewishness, you start looking at the Passover. I know we did like a Passover thing here one time at the church and I, I just went to the Old Testament and I just followed exactly what, he, what it said in the scriptures as far as what was to be on the Passover plate, the bitter herbs and the lamb and you know this, all this stuff. And then the people who came, they were like, isn't there supposed to be a lot more other stuff? Because over time, tradition added a lot more to the Passover meal than what was just commanded originally. And you see, we can sometimes think that if there's a Jewish tradition, it's somehow really close to scripture. But Jesus did warn against these traditions. So we want to have wisdom with them. Don't, don't think something's bad because it's tradition, but don't think it's good because it's tradition either. Weigh it, measure it, gives it some thought. Um, uh, but definitely the law is not to be obeyed for righteousness. We get our righteousness through faith in Jesus. That's it. End of story. 
We follow God morally for other reasons. Gratitude, love, uh, for his glory, for, uh, because, because it's true, it's right. Then in verse 5, as we continue, it says, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. Who does shall live by them. This is a repeated concept in the Old Testament. Um, one place you find it is in Leviticus 18.5. He says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. I like how God just puts the gauntlet down. He says this a lot in Leviticus. I'm the Lord. <laughs> it's like point made. He goes, you're going to do this. I'm God. Any questions? <laughs> That's, I like the authority of it. Um, but the point here is, if a man does, he will live by them. If a man does. And if he doesn't, he'll die. And the law taught us this lesson. We fail, we fail, we fail. Just look at Israel's historical failures throughout the Old Testament. Again, uh, the Gentiles failed. Hands down, this is already settled. We all know they all failed, right? But the Jews who received the law also failed. So we read throughout the Old Testament, like for instance, the book of Judges. In fact, Judges gets depressing as you get towards the end of the book. Have you noticed this? You're like, oh, Israel, you know, did what's right in their own eyes and God judged them with other nations and brought up a deliverer and brought them back to him. Oh, then they apostatized, built the high places, worshiped false gods and God brought in people to punish them. And then, oh, he delivers them. Oh, and they, one generation, nope, nope, just, you know, 10 years of serving the Lord and then they're back into sin and they're like, oh, 20 years of serving God and then back into sin. And it's just, it's cycle after cycle. But if you notice the cycles aren't just like this, they're more like this. And things are getting worse, progressively worse. And this seems to be the case for Israel. Northern Israel ends up being taken out of the land. Then southern Israel ends up having the temple destroyed and being driven from the land. It's, it's very, very sad. So God's solution in the book of Jeremiah is that there's a future coming time when God will make him a new covenant. And instead of writing it on these tablets, he's going to write it on their hearts. And that's what Jesus came and fulfilled. Not the law for righteousness, but the sacrifice. This, that's why he says at Passover, right? This is the new covenant in my blood. Here's the deal. I will die for you. This is it. So you don't need to twist the scriptures to get this. You just have to have an honest look at the Old Testament to see. You know, Abraham saved by faith. The law enters in. It's just an example of the failures of man. So God's going to give a new covenant, which he does through Jesus. The pictures of the sacrifices of Christ throughout Leviticus, throughout the atoning system that we see in the sacrificial laws. And then, of course, we have the fulfillment in the New Testament of Jesus doing these things. Uh, it's all supported beautifully. Um, verse 6 it says, but the righteousness of faith, not the righteousness of works, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach. Now, this is again a passage where if you go to the Old Testament, you'll go, is Paul not quoting this the way I think he is? So let's look at that for a second. It says in Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 through 14, this is the passage he's quoting. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. This is about the law, not about the Messiah. So someone might say, well, Paul's misquoting it. 
really what Paul's doing is, is he's offering us a picture just as God gave the law to Israel, now God has given Messiah to Israel. As he provided the law, he's provided Messiah. As you received for obedience the law, now you'll receive for faith the Messiah. He's drawing together these different threads. Do you see how what he's doing is, is not saying this passage is about Messiah. He's saying this passage is a pattern that God follows not only in the law, but then in the giving of Messiah. So let's look at it, verse 6 again. It says, But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. So in this case, instead of, I don't have to go up into heaven to get the law from God. Rather, Christ has come down to bring me his righteousness. That's the contrast. Who will descend into the abyss or who will go across the sea to retrieve these words of truth for us? That would be the law application. The application to Jesus is that um, he went and died in my place. I'm not going to undo the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm trusting in that. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. What is this new word that's near you, this fulfillment? It's just the word of faith which we preach. As God provided the law, which you failed, he provided the gospel, which is not based on your performance. Good news. He's the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. Those who believe. So we're going to move a little bit further, but but we're going to sort of call it a night here. And I'm going to pick up... Um, I'm going to pick up where we're leaving off about this gospel message, but let's just look at verse 9. It says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He breaks down. I love the, the complexity and the simplicity that we have it, right? This is like a really deeply complex explanation of the gospel when you really get into the details of it all. But at the end, he's like, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. This is like one of the most common quoted verses for preaching the gospel to people because it's the simplified conclusion from all the complexity. The gospel is ultimately so simple that anybody could get it. Yet, for those who wish to engage their hearts and minds, loving God with all their mind, you will find there is such a beautiful complexity that is there within the intricacies of Old and New Testament being married together in Christ that is just, is just beautiful. And what's the message? Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. That means that you think Jesus is Lord. Not the bro Jesus. Jesus is just all right with me. Well, that's really not all right, actually. You need a little bit more than that. He needs to be my Lord. So I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus. Now, what if someone makes an insincere confession? Well, that's called lying. It doesn't count right? The Lord Jesus, he's my Lord, truly. And I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. This thing is that the resurrection of Jesus is an essential gospel truth. And it, and it ends up being oftentimes how you can tell true believers from non-believers. Do you really believe Jesus physically rose from the dead? Yes. That's one real indicator of a, of a genuine faith. Um, the resurrection of Christ. And that's it. So what do I have to do then other than that? No, that's it, man. That's the whole point. Your do is like doo-doo. It's not going to help you. What you need is God's righteousness gifted to you through Jesus Christ. You confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. You believe in your heart. Why well, do I do that? You literally just confess with your mouth. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Jesus, you're my Lord. 
that means I'm turning from sin and I'm turning to Christ. That's repentance and faith summarized in one wonderful little phrase, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from, and from the dead. Jesus, you're going to do it all for me. I'm just turning my life to you and you're taking care of it. End of story. That's the message. Um, we'll get more into this and next week we're going to talk about how this gospel message is then challenged by what about people who've never heard it? What about those who've never heard the gospel? And he's going to get into these details as we continue through Romans 10. Because Paul loves to, it, to answer objections while he's teaching. I like that. I, and I've tried to adopt that style in my own teaching as well. So I feel very biblical. Um, I feel very good about that. This wasn't my idea. I just copied Paul the apostle. <laughs> so let's, let's pray. Um, Father God, we, uh, we thank you so much for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We confess Jesus is our Lord. He's our Lord. Our lives belong to him. Our hearts are submitted to him. He is Lord. And we believe in our hearts. We believe in our hearts. God, Father, you raised him from the dead. And by this we're saved. By just believing in the one who has done everything for us. Suffered for our sins. Died. Rose again. The simplicity of it all. Lord, we thank you for the complexity, but we thank you even more for the simplicity. Remind us of these things. Help us to be prepared to share the simplicity of the gospel with someone this week. We pray for opportunity. We pray, Lord, that we would be, um, we would be those who are a mouthpiece for Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. So it really, what, so what Paul's not doing is he's not interpreting those words to be about Jesus. I think he's drawing an analogy. He's saying, so when God gave us the law, he, there, there's these parallels between the giving of the law and the giving of the Messiah. And the giving, in the giving of the law, God tells the people, you need to do this work. You need to do these words, these laws. You need to obey this. Why? Don't act like it's far off and you don't know it. No, I've given it to you. Don't act like it's way over there and has to be brought to you. I've, I've accomplished it for you. So in the giving of Jesus, since it's not through the law will be righteous, it's through Jesus. It's like, don't be like, well, how will I, how will I know and make all these excuses about Jesus? No, don't as if he didn't come down from heaven, as if he didn't die for your sins, but receive these things by faith. The emphasis with the law was the do. The emphasis with Jesus is believe. Um, so he's drawing a parallel analogy between the law and Jesus. It's a, it's a teaching point that you might give, like, let's say, um, uh, let's say that I, I was, here's another parallel example. Um, in Hosea chapter one, he says, I'm going to do a work in your days, Hosea, that if I told you it, you wouldn't even believe it. So then I can go, here's my teaching point, parallel it to Jesus. I go, God did a work through Messiah that was, that was so just his idea and not yours that if he told you, you wouldn't believe it. And guess what? Just like Hosea, you didn't believe it. I'm not saying the Hosea passage is about Messiah, but I'm saying that there's a parallel truth about Messiah in, by way of analogy or comparison. So sometimes Paul is quoting, he's using a, an analogy, the way like a teacher might draw a picture. Sometimes he's just saying direct fulfillment. Other times he's drawing out this, like he is in this passage, drawing out like complicated lines of reasoning that are targeted towards a Jewish mind to bring them to New Testament faith. Um, so it's really clever, actually. Um, but sometimes you read it and you go, I, I think you quoted that wrong, Paul. And the truth is, it does feel that way because you're reading it probably from that Gentile mindset and we can, need to kind of go back. And for what it's worth, I look at these things like in two different categories. Like you have prophecies that are clearly about Messiah. 
these are the ones I would use to witness to someone that Jesus is the Messiah. Once you've established he's the Messiah, now you can look back at all the other stuff that's less, it's more vague, it's less specific, and you can see Jesus in it. But you wouldn't use that in witnessing, you'd use that in understanding after you've already established who he is. Does that, does that make sense? Once you know that he's the storyline of the Bible, now I can look back and see him all over the place. Before that, I want to go to specific passages that are more clear to establish that truth. And that's really helped me a lot so that when I hear pastors saying like, I see Jesus in this psalm, I'm not like, oh, good, good, that's nice, that's cute that you see that. Instead, it's more like, okay, this is a hindsight, I see Jesus in this psalm, not a foresight, I see Jesus in this psalm. That's the difference. So I hope that helps you in your own study of the Old Testament, that there's yeah, the hindsight and the foresight.